All right, how about we pray uh, before we get into the passage this morning, uh, this first section from the book of Malachi. Father, we thank you so much that your word is living. The Bible is not a dry and dusty book, but it is the breath of God in the same way in which your breath, your words brought this world into being, took it from darkness and chaos and filled it with light and life and beauty. We believe this morning that the breath of your word takes our lives and fills them with life and light and beauty as well. So Lord, help us to listen to your word and to pay attention to it. And even when it says things that make us uncomfortable, help us to not run away or be afraid, but help us to sit courageously in front of it and respond to all that you have to say. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I want you to imagine a husband He's been at work all week on the tools. Friday afternoon, he gets off from work as soon as he can. He drives home as quickly as he can, comes into the house through the front door, and he says to his wife, I love you. Now, we would expect, wouldn't we, for her answer to be something along the lines of, I love you too. But if she replied with doubt and scepticism to her husband, how have you loved me? Then we would probably conclude this morning that that marriage, that couple's marriage is in serious trouble. I want you to imagine another scenario that you're just, um, uh, let's say you're just walking down the street and Somebody's driving past, they wind the window down and they yell out the window to you, I love you. If somebody did that to us, we would probably yell back, what do you mean? And it would be perfectly okay for us to say that, wouldn't it? Because we don't know who that person is. We don't have any relationship with that person driving down the road. But when a husband or a wife respond with the question, how have you loved me? And they, they are asking that question with doubt and scepticism, then we know that that relationship is in deep trouble. Now at the very heart of it, this is the book of Malachi. That is what is the fundamental problem in the book of Malachi. In fact, most commentators say that these initial verses set the tone for the whole book. Everything that is going to be said in the rest of the book of Malachi flows out of these initial verses. God's people doubt, they are sceptical that God loves them. Now, maybe... This morning, that's where some of us are. Maybe you're here this morning and you're wondering if God has forgotten about you. Especially when things are hard or life isn't going the way that you hoped. 
And maybe you're questioning this morning, does God love you? You hear those words, I love you, and the gut reaction is, in what way? And so this morning, we're going to have a look at these initial verses in Malachi, and we're particularly going to have a look at the way in which God answers the doubt and the skepticism of his people because God's answer to his people is as applicable back then as it is today. Now, the first thing that uh, I want to draw your attention to is that in all of the messages, the seven messages that Malachi delivers, they all follow the same structure. And so the pattern in this, uh, in this first message, and it's helpful to see it, there's three things that take place. The first thing that it will take place is that God will make a statement. God will make a claim. And then secondly, what we'll discover in all of the seven messages is that God's statement, God's claim will be disputed. And finally, God will then have to give proof or evidence for why he made the statement in the first part. So, let's have a look at these three things in this first message. Malachi's first speech, we hear this most wonderful beginning, this most wonderful opening statement. I have loved you, says the Lord, in verse 2. But immediately, we get, the, we get to see the real spiritual state of God's people by their response to Malachi's message, the people respond to God's word with skepticism and doubt. In verse 2, they say to the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? In other words, show us some evidence, God. Give us some proof that you love us. Well, the first thing I want to point out this morning is that it's important for us to understand that God's people were most likely not speaking these words out loud. When it says in verse 2, but you ask, how have you loved us? Don't, Don't think that God's people are actually outwardly verbalizing these words to God, because as we continue to read through the book of Malachi, we begin to see that God's people are actually regularly coming to the temple. They're regularly bringing sacrifices, though God will have something to say about the kind of sacrifices that they're bringing. And they are also regularly bringing at least part of their tithes to the Lord. So so there is a lot of activity. There's a lot of attendance in the temp- to the temple. And so I think it is safe to say that probably, most likely, God's people are not speaking these words out loud. So really what's going on here is that God is seeing their thoughts. God, is, God knows what is on 
their minds. God knows what is in their hearts. And so God is verbalizing their internal thoughts and their internal reactions. So don't look at verse 2 and say, I would never say something like that out loud because that's not what was going on back in the days of Malachi. These are thoughts, these are internal reactions to God's word. A.W. Tozer said, he said, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He said, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. This is not only true of the individual Christian, but it's also true of the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. Do you hear what Tozer is saying? He's saying, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. In other words, it's those knee-jerk reactions to God's word that reveal what we really think about him. And here in the book of Malachi, the people's skepticism and doubt shows that they don't trust, they don't believe God's word. I wonder if that's you this morning. You would never say these kind of words out loud. You're you're too clever for that. You've been at church for too long. You know that that would not go down well in church. But as you're sitting here this morning, you just can't help but ask this question, how have you loved me? This is what God's getting at. You see, God is not happy for his people to be living like this. God is is like the husband in love and he's coming back home and he's saying to his people, I want you to know that I love you and I want you in return to respond to my love. And so I want you to notice in these initial verses that it is God who's coming. God is making the first step. It is God who is initiating. It's God who's going to come and deal with the scepticism of his people. Now, why are God's people asking these questions? Well, I think it's important just to understand a little bit of what's going on in the days of Malachi. You see, After 70 years of being in exile in the land of Babylon, a small, a little remnant of God's people had returned to the land. Twelve tribes had gone into exile, but only really two had returned, and life was really, really, really tough. The land that they lived in was now much smaller in size than the one that they'd left, to go into exile. The temple that they'd rebuilt was much smaller and 
much less impressive than the one that they had, that the Babylonians had destroyed. There was a lot of poverty in the land. They were under the foreign rule of Persians and they had strong enemies on every side. Now, we mustn't judge God's people at this moment. Things are tough and they are, things are not going as they had planned or as they had expected. And so it's important for us to not sit here this morning and to look down our noses at them and to ask the question, how on earth could you say this? Sometimes circumstances are difficult like they are at this moment. Sometimes things are tough. And what God's people are beginning to do in these verses is they are beginning to look at God through their circumstances. They're beginning to look at God's love through their circumstances. They're beginning to doubt God because of their circumstances. When we put on a pair of sunglasses, everything looks different. And when we begin to doubt God's love, everything begins to change. See if I can get this up, sorry. Is that going to work? Yeah, it's on. Can you just move to the next slide? Thank you. There we go. You see, when we, when we doubt God's love, when we begin to look at God's love through our circumstances, everything in our life begins to change. Everything is affected. Everything is impacted. Perhaps you can relate to the reaction of God's people in Malachi. You're still coming to church, but your love for Jesus has grown, it's grown dry and dusty. Your career has not gone the way you planned. Maybe you're struggling with a difficult relationship this morning. You've received a bad health diagnosis. Your finances are not going well. You feel rejected and misunderstood. And right now, right now this morning, you sympathize with God's people and you ask the same question, how have you loved us? Well, we need to have a look at God's answer. If you can bring up the next slide, thank you. And we need to have a look at the evidence that God will give about his claim that he loves his people. The end of verse 2, God says, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord." You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. I want to suggest to you that God's response, God's 
answer to his people is a real surprise. Imagine for a moment that a wife asks her husband, do you love me? Imagine if he answered, of course I do. Don't you remember that 20 years ago I put a ring on your finger? Now what would you think about that answer? What would she think? We would hope, wouldn't we, that if the wife said to ask her husband, how do you love me? We would hope that the husband would give a long list of things that he's just been doing. We hope he would say something like this, honey, I do love you. Don't you remember that just this week I put out the bins, I mowed the lawn, I washed your car, I cooked dinner, I, I, um, I packed the dishwasher and I took the kids out to give you some peace and quiet. We would hope that that would kind of be the answer. And yet, it seems here that God goes back to a decision that he made thousands of years before. Because in these verses, instead of giving a current and up-to-date list of all of his loving works, God goes back, way back to the book of Genesis. He goes back to a decision that took place thousands of years before and he tells his people, he brings his people back to the story of two brothers, Esau and Jacob. And if we can just bring up the next slide, that would be very helpful. See, God goes back in time into the womb of a very uncomfortable, unsettled young mum who has come to him in prayer. Rebecca is carrying twins in her womb and she's unsettled because the two babies seem to be constantly fighting with each other. The names of these two babies are found in verse 2. The first born of these two twins is Esau and the younger is his name is Jacob. Esau, who was the oldest, became the father of the nation of Edom. And Jacob, the younger, became the father of the nation of Israel. Now, as we read through these verses, it says in verse, in verse 2, was not Esau, Jacob's brother. Now, what God is doing is he's bringing to God's people the, the, to their attention that these two, these two brothers were, I mean, these two have grown up, their, their circumstances and their background are as nearly identical as you possibly can get. They're both in the womb at the same time, they will have the same parents. They will grow up in the same family, in the same era, in the same land. And yet we find these staggering words, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. God will love one, and yet he will hate the other. Now, what is God saying to his people? Why is he pointing this out? 
Now, the first thing we need to understand is that when God says, when God talks about his love to Jacob, he's not just expressing a warm affection for his people. No. God is reminding them of his covenant love, which is much, much deeper and stronger. He's reminding them that he has entered into an agreement. He has set his affection on his people and he will love them and he is committed to them and he will walk with them because of his decision that took place thousands of years ago. Now, as we read through the story in Genesis, we are surprised to discover that there is no real reason for God making this decision. We do know that Esau was, was not a good guy. It's pretty clear as we read through Genesis, he did all kinds of stuff uh, he married a couple of women that his parents disproved of. He tried to kill his brother. There is a whole series of things that Esau did. He was not a good young man. But when we read through Jacob's story, we discover it's pretty much the same, isn't it? Jacob was a deceiver, a liar. He swindled his brother's inheritance off him. He did all kinds of bad stuff. So as we, as we read through the story of Esau, Esau and Jacob, we, 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 we ask the question, well, why is it that God set his affection on Jacob, but he didn't on Esau? And why did God enter into covenant love with Jacob, but he didn't with Esau? And friends, the point of what God is saying this morning is there, there is no answer, there is no reason. Read through the story again and that you will not be able to discover a reason for why God loved Jacob and set his covenant affection on Jacob, but he didn't with Esau. What's God saying to us this morning? Can I ask the question, what, why are you a Christian? Why are you here this morning? Well, I go back through my life and I can't answer that question. There's nothing in my life that, that merits God's love. There's nothing that I did when I was a little boy that made me deserve God's love. I'm no better than my neighbours. I've sinned as much as they have, and yet the, the glory of God's grace, the wonder of God's grace, is that God loves me. That's the point that God is making. There is no human reason for you being chosen. There is no reason for you being a Christian this morning. It is purely the grace of God. For by grace you are saved. It's through faith. This is not of yourself. This is not by works. 
It is the gift of God. The very first thing that God would want you to know this morning is that you have been saved because of his grace and his mercy. We don't deserve it. We didn't work for it. We didn't earn it. God gave us our salvation. It is a gift that has come from him. And God is saying to his people in the Old Testament, yep, you are right, there is no human reason for why one was chosen and the other wasn't. But you need to know that you were chosen. And this morning we can say, as God's people, we have been chosen in Christ. Before the foundation of the world, we don't understand how this works. But God saw us and knew us. And he predestined us to be his children. And you know what? The, the doctrine of God's election, it doesn't, it doesn't make us proud. It actually reminds us that there is nothing in us that, that deserves God's love. It's purely a gift of God. But God goes on in verse 5 and he says, he says, But Esau I have hated and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins, but this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I will demolish I want you to see what's going on here. You see, at the same time, or a little bit later, after God's people were exiled to Babylon, the Babylonians then came in and crushed the Edomites. And so Edom was displaced, and in these verses we hear Edom's plans. They say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild our nation, we will we're going to build it from the ruins. We're going to get back to what we were. And God says, no, you're not. Though they may build, I will demolish. Do you hear God's words? God is saying to the enemies of his people, you may try to rebuild, but you are doomed to fail. They will be called the wicked land, a place, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. What God is saying to his people is your enemies, the ones that sunk your boot into you when you were at your lowest moment, when, it, when Israel was being attacked by the Babylonians, the Edomites came in and they lent a hand to the Babylonians. They said, this is our moment. Let's just wipe them out. And God is saying to Edom, he's saying, you are going to be under my judgment and my wrath. Well, as God's people this morning, isn't it a wonderful thing to know that all of our enemies are under the wrath of God? One day, sin is going to be completely eradicated from our bodies and from this world. God will judge all sin. 
One day, all disease is going to be eradicated from this world that we live in, and we will live in a new heavens and a new earth in which there will be no more sin, no more sickness, no more disease. And the final enemy of God's people will be crushed forever, forever and ever. Death will be thrown into the lake of fire and there will be, for, there will be no more death. And all of the spiritual powers and principalities that we don't understand, we don't see in the spiritual world, they will be thrown into the lake of fire. Our enemies are under the judgment of God. We have been promised victory in the name of the Lord Jesus. And our future... This is what God is getting at. He says in verse 5, you will see it with your own eyes and you will say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. The glory of God will shine throughout the whole world. Victory is ours in Christ. See, what God is saying is, I've never left you. From that moment that I chose you in Rebecca's womb, I have committed myself, I have bound myself to you in covenant love. And I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You might not understand the path that I'm taking. And they didn't understand the path. Do you know what? 400 years later, who would come? God would send He'd send Jesus, the Messiah, the Saviour, the King of the world. They didn't get that at this moment, but this is what God was working in them to do. And so this morning, you may not, you might, you may not see what God is doing in your life right now, but can I just remind you that you have been chosen in Christ. And Jesus said, he said to you and to his disciples in the upper room, this is the blood of the new covenant. I'm binding myself to you in covenant love. Jesus went to the cross on our behalf and he judged the powers and principalities, the sin in our lives, and one day he will rule and reign forever and you will see it, verse 5, with your own eyes and you will say, great is Lord. We've got a great future. It may be difficult right now, but, but God has bound himself in covenant love to us through his son, the Lord Jesus. And if we could only this morning see a little bit more clearly God's love for us, then when we hear his words, I have loved you, we wouldn't ask the question, how? How do we respond? Just bring up the last slide, thank you. Many years ago, I had to do a, I had to go on a trip to Argentina for business. I was working for an engineering company in Brisbane that sold equipment into South America. Uh, for those who don't know um, the geography of of Argentina, of Chile, Argentina. So I flew from Australia across the Pacific um, 
uh, stopped in Vanuatu, stopped at Easter Island, and then took a flight from Santiago, Chile, across to Argentina. Now, uh, between Santiago and Buenos Aires, there are the, and the Andes Mountains. Um, some of the peaks get to around about 6,000 metres. It's, it's incredible mountain range. And you may have um, remembered the story of the Uruguayan rugby union team, that the plane that came down somewhere in those mountains. Well, the flight was going OK. Um, you go out of Santiago, you climb until you can um, get above the Andes Mountains, and then you swing right and you cross. Well, on this flight, um, and I'm not a great flyer, I'll, I'll admit that. I'm much better now than what I was, but um, um, I was a fairly, I was a pretty nervous uh, flyer. And as we cross the Andes Mountains, the, the plane oh, just started shuddering, jumping all around. It's one of those flights where the meals just went all over the cabin. And it was, it was horrible. It was horrible. Just up and down all over the show. Sitting in the row in front of me was uh, a 12-year-old boy and his granddad. And this little boy thought this was the most wonderful thing that had ever happened. It was like a roller coaster ride for him. Every time there was a huge drop and, you know, plates are going, um, the trolley is, people are trying to hold on to the trolley. He would look up at his grandfather and say, that was a good one, wasn't it? The grandfather, I could tell his grandfather was trying his very best to be really calm and, and, and to try and, you know, help his grandson. But his grandson was just absolutely loving the trip. I couldn't help but reflect on my journey and the boys. We were both going through the same trials, the same tribulations, and yet for one, it was a joy, and for the other, it was a struggle and despair. What was the difference? Probably in my mind, it was, I didn't trust that this aeroplane could actually get us through. I thought it was going to fall. I thought we were going to crash. And yet the little boy had absolute confidence that that plane could handle whatever those winds and turbulence threw at it. Who out of the two enjoyed the journey the most? Little boy. He loved it, every minute of it. He's probably speaking about it right now somewhere in the world. You know, sometimes that's, I think, that is, that is a good illustration of how sometimes we go through life. We can either trust God and we can trust Him to bring us through whatever it is that we are facing, and we can look at the, the bad stuff and go, it's all right, it's okay, God's with us and he'll get us through. Or you can be like me, moaning, groaning, sweating bullets, crying out to God, why have you done this to me? And dread every moment of the journey. Malachi's message to us this morning is, God loves you. In Christ, 
you are deeply loved. And because of his covenant commitment, regardless of all the turbulence that you may be going through or you may go through, because God has bound himself to you in covenant love through the Lord Jesus and his proof and evidence of it is the cross of Christ where he would lay down his life for his... He he would give his life, the life of his own son for you and me. You and I, we can be guaranteed that we will get through. Amen? And we will see it with our own eyes. May the Lord encourage you. Amen.